Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. We pray that our hearts would be open to the great truths here. Uh, Amos has been a book of your holiness, your judgments, but also your great compassion, as we'll see soon. We uh, ask for you to bless our looking at this way you worked in history. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when a person becomes a, a Christian, well, let me change that. Um, I don't want to put it that way. Let's use Paul language. Uh, when a person moves from the domain of darkness and is transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son, then he or she becomes a new creature. So it's the same person, but this change takes place when that happens. In fact, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 5 as an, a new creation. We, we are new creatures. And that's why I'm uh, kind of want to shy away from the word Christian, I think, because you know a lot of people label themselves as a Christian, but that change hasn't taken place. There's no, um, they haven't been transferred from the kingdom of the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. That hasn't happened yet. They've never made that transfer. And, um, you know, for many people, Christian, the word Christian is just a label for the faith they were raised in or their cultural faith or whatever that might be. So um, it's very different from that to being literally transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Those are two very different things. And being transferred from one kingdom to another is not just like they change your passport, you know, um, or some, some heavenly ledger has your name in a, in a different spot. Although that's true, I think, but uh, it's much more than that. It's much more than citizenship papers. It's something that, um, it's something deep within. It's something that happens in your heart. You actually are a different person. You belong to God in Christ. You no longer belong to the God of this world, which is what the Bible calls the devil. Um, it's much, much more. So Jesus called it the new birth, right? The being born from above. That was his, his language. Paul called it being a new creation. So in the Old Testament, um, God calls it, God says he puts in you a new heart and he puts his spirit within you. That's Ezekiel chapter 36. So this change has to happen, this uh, remarkable change. Sometimes it's very dramatic, and sometimes it's really slow. It's like this change happens deep within and it just starts working its way out into your life. Sometimes people are like, wow, I'm a completely different person. And sometimes it's, it's a deep planted seed that grows in you. For me, it was a process, kind of a long process. But it always happens if God is working in you and if you can truly bear the name Christian, if you can truly carry Christ's name with you. Doesn't mean you're perfect when that change happens. Uh, it doesn't mean you have it all figured out. It does mean that you're not the same person that you were before. And you are growing in a direction. That's what it means. So understanding this is really important when we talk about Amos and his prophecies to Israel because the kingdom of Israel was corrupt and wicked and very religious. Very religious. We see another dimension of it today in chapter 8 of Amos we find out that they, they kept the feasts of Moses. It really hasn't mentioned that before. They kept the Sabbath. But they also set up their own idols and they worshipped idols from other countries that were nearby or they erected for themselves to cover all their d d divinity bases, you know. Well, if Yahweh's not going to answer me, I'll also pray to the Baals and the Ashtaroth and all those different kinds of gods. So the, the main point is 
they did not love God. They didn't honor God inside their hearts. To be an Israelite was a label, and they did go through the motions of religious worship and certain practices, and they kept the Sabbath, but they didn't love God. Nothing was going on in their hearts that was Godward. Just like the person that says, I'm, I'm a Christian, but, I, but, but that same person might have literally zero concern at all with honoring God with their life. That's not even a thought that enters their head. Honor God. What a foreign concept. So that, actually that, having the right label and not having it in your heart is probably the most dangerous spiritual condition to be in. Because if you're like an anti-Christian, you're probably closer than the person that thinks they're a Christian or just labels themselves as a Christian. And you can guess why, because that person believes they're safe. They think they're okay. I, well, I'm a, sure I'm a Christian. My parents were Christians. I was raised as, a, as some kind of a Christian. But you know what that's like? It's like being inoculated. You know how they inoculate people for certain diseases? It's like you've got just enough of religion, enough to label yourself as a Christian, but Christ isn't deep in your heart. It's not a passion for you. It's not anybody you really care about. You don't even think about it. So you've kind of been inoculated away from him by thinking you've got this Christian label, but um, you don't know him. There's not a relationship there with him. So uh, how do you know if that change has actually happened to you? How do you know if you're born anew, born from above, as Jesus would describe it? It mostly has to do with your affections, what you love, what, where your heart is. That's really how you know. You love God. You love him for who he is, not just the God you make up in your mind, but actually as he's revealed himself. You love that God, the God that's in this book, the God that reveals himself here. You love him. There's, and that doesn't mean that's a perfect love because we're all fallen creatures, but it's a real love. And you can't love God, the creator of the universe, if there's not something in you that desires to please him to actually live for him, to say, you know what you say, that's what matters. It matters more than what I think or what my heart tells me or what other people tell me. It's the most important thing there is. So pleasing him actually becomes the central reality of your life. And again, we all stumble in many ways, but still that fundamental change has happened internally and that's gotta be there. It's just gotta be there. There's, otherwise, you've just been inoculated with religion and that's, that's deadly, that's deadly. So I think this becomes really obvious um, as we look at these people in Amos chapter 8 that are still in darkness, even though they're practicing Jews in certain ways. So we're in the last half of the book. We're almost to the end. So chapter 7 through 9, we talked about last time, contains five visions that Amos is given. And he's supposed to share these visions with the nation of Israel. And last time we saw in chapter 7 that there were three visions, but the last one in chapter 7 was the plumb line, that, that measuring instrument that God drops down to measure how straight they are. You know, that's what a plumb line is used for in construction. And so he's going to measure his people Israel. And we saw last time how they fared in that. In chapter 7, verse 8, it says, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam, that was the king, with the sword. So very clear, doom is coming because when God measured them, there was nothing straight there. 
So chapter 8, it's a new prophecy altogether, a different one, a new vision, probably delivered by Amos, probably delivered by him at the, you just can kind of tell from the context here of the wording, during the celebration of the Feast of Booths. Booths like little constructed things they used to make, right? And that was one of the three major feasts in Israel. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 16, it's called the Feast of Ingathering. So there were two feasts talked about in that verse. In fact, let me just read it for you. It says, also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor from what you sow in the field. Also, and here comes our feast, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. So the second feast is called the Feast of Booths. So the first, the first feast was when they got all the grain in and the second season of gathering was when they brought the fruit in. So olives and things like that. So... Um, that's the Feast of Booths. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot, which means tabernacle or booth. It's like a little temporary structure. And that's the kind of thing they built in the wilderness when they were traveling for 40 years. So it's a remembrance of how God guided them and led them and protected them through the wilderness journeys and wanderings. So Jews still do that today. Uh, if you go to Israel during that period, you'll see Orthodox Jews building these little structures outside. And they live in that for a week, just like you're supposed to do. They keep that still. So this particular agricultural period was when grapes and olives and things were gathered in and then you would have this feast and it was a feast of celebration to thank God and to think about the Lord and celebrate God's goodness. It was supposed to be joyful. So with that in mind, Amos is going to tell us how the people in his day are observing those feasts. So they did have them. They did build a little booth and they had all the food and all that kind of stuff. But he tells us what they were doing. So verse 1, chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. So, he's having a vision, and the vision is a basket of fruit. Okay. All right, great. He said, what do you see, Amos? And Amos said, a basket of summer fruit. Well, what could that mean? Well, verse 2, the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. That's it. That's what it means. Their, their day has come to an end. I will spare them no longer. Now there's a little play on words going on here because the word for summer fruit in Hebrew, so it's a basket of summer fruit, it's kaetz. And the word for end, like come to an end, is kaetz. And they sound really similar. So it's, and there's a lot of wordplay in the prophets in the Bible. And this is one example of that. So what do you see? I see kaetz. What does that mean? It's cakes for them. <laughs> their, their, their end is coming. So the fruit is ripe and it's time for judgment. So the nation is about to come to an end as a nation. That's what the, all these prophecies have been about. So it doesn't beat about the bush. Verse 3, Amos gets right into it. Um, the songs of the palace will turn into wailing in that day, declares the Lord. Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. So that's what's coming. Destruction and death by invasion. That still goes on in the world, doesn't it? But we're never left with just that, though that is what's coming. So for their benefit and for our benefit as those who are reading this, Anybody who reads the words of God benefits from that. But we can learn what God is looking for and what he sees when he looks at the hearts of men. Because the heart is what matters. So generally speaking, we don't know what other people are thinking. 
right? I mean, what their primary concerns are, what they actually live for. Now, we can guess because we can listen to them and what they enjoy talking about. We can um, see how they use their time. We can see how they respond to certain situations. But we can't really know what's in somebody's heart because sometimes people will talk in a way that's different than what's going on in their heart. So we can't always really know. But here, God reveals the hearts of the Israelites through the prophet because God does read hearts. And he's communicating to Amos what the hearts of his people are at this time. So he wants them to know, he wants us to know, exactly what they are being judged for. And of course, we've already talked about many of these things. And Amos, you know, is a collection of prophecies. The messages are pretty similar, although there's different emphases in the different prophecies. But um, each one has its unique features. And, and this is the one where we learn that they did keep Sabbath. And they did keep the religious feast. We weren't really told that before. They were religious. But where was their heart on a Sabbath day when they were not allowed to work? When they were supposed to be thinking about God and reading the scriptures and sharing in fellowship together and resting from the world and thinking about godly things. Where were their hearts on those days? And when they participated in the feast, like the Feast of the Ingathering there, where were their hearts? These are the things that begin to be addressed in verse 4. So he asked, he asked the people of Israel to listen. Hear this, he says. Hear this. And specifically, he asked this of unjust people, of the elites that crush the poor. So hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying... So now here come their thoughts. This is, he's reading their minds. This is what they're thinking about. Verse 5. When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market? When will that Sabbath be over? The whole day not earning any profits. Wow. Can't wait till tomorrow. I am losing money today. There are people out there for me to cheat. And I've got a whole day. I can't do it. I'm losing a whole day. That's literally what they were thinking. Business, money, more wealth. They observe the Feast of Booths, but they don't celebrate it. They're not celebrating God. They're not thankful to God for what he did for them. They chafe at the feast because it's keeping them from making more money. They don't turn their attention to God. Their minds are on their fortunes. Of course, that means they're idolaters. They actually are idolaters. They worship idols. But the New Testament says that coveting stuff is idolatry too if it gets in the way of, of your relationship with God. The pursuit of money is one of the great traps of the world and of Satan. And Jesus warned so often, so often about the power of riches. Remember the story of the soils? It talks about a guy scattering seed. And there's four different kinds of soils that receive the seed. Do you remember that? And some of them, the seed just lays there. But some of them, it actually goes into the ground and starts to spring up. you remember? Mm -hmm. And he talks about the, the, the one that's uh, sown um, in, in soil that has a lot of thorns around it. And the word of God is the seed, and the heart is the soil. So what kind of a heart is there? And Jesus said of, one, of the thorns, he said, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word. 
That's what he says. He said, and it becomes unfruitful. There's nothing, no fruit growing from that. And then, do you remember the man in Luke chapter 12 who interrupted Jesus while he was teaching? You gotta be able to have a little moxie there to do that, I would think. But he's sitting there and he's, he's listening to the wisest man that ever lived, the greatest teacher that ever lived, experiencing what I, I think I would give my right and left arm to hear, to, to actually be there and listen to him teach, sitting under that. But what was that man thinking about? He was thinking about his inheritance, which he hasn't gotten, hasn't come yet. His, his father's estate has been settled and his brother is the executor and he hasn't seen the money yet. So he says, he, uh, well he's thinking in his mind, he's thinking he's not going to give it to me. He's not gonna. So Jesus is teaching, he's sitting there listening, not listening and thinking, I'm not going to get my money. He's not going to, he's going to cheat me. I know he is. He's going he's to keep it for himself. I'm not going to get my whole share. He's holding it back. It's mine by right. And so he pops up. Maybe his brother was even there. My guess is he probably was. They're both listening to Jesus. So he pops up and he says, teacher, because Jesus has authority. He can tell everybody's there for him. Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And do you remember what Jesus said? Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? And then instead of going back to his teaching, Jesus sees this as a teachable moment. So he shifts in what he's saying. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, and he's going to focus on the heart, of course. He, he said to them, this is Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store all my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's where that phrase comes from. And then in verse 20, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, Jesus said, who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's invested all of his life and energy into stuff and none of it into God, his relationship with God. You know, you really can't take it with you. You really can't. You can't escape standing before God either. You really can't escape that. There is death and death is followed by heavenly, heavenly things and Lake Tahoe-like places. And <laughs> that's, what it's, that's what it is. No, no, right after death is the judgment. That's what happens right after death. You stand before God. And God is God. He made everything. He owns everything. It's His universe. Every, every real joy that we experience in this life, and there are many, come from Him. 
It's all part of his creation. Even the wicked people enjoy the gifts of God and the things that God has blessed them with. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. We all enjoy a beautiful sunset. So do the wicked, right? He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus said. Now the righteous worship God for these gifts. The unrighteous don't. They just enjoy them for themselves. The righteous see their own sin and they repent in dust and ashes and the unrighteous don't. They don't bother repenting. They don't need to do that. The righteous believe God is worthy of all worship and devotion and the unrighteous, they have a really hard time even thinking about that. It's like, I don't get that. The righteous say, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. The righteous say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because their heart is his, not in their stuff. Because life is not about this short span we live on earth. When you've been married 40 years, <laughs> you know there's not that many years left. <laughs> It's a short time we're on earth. But that during that time, what life is about is giving God his due, his, his, the honors for all of his gifts, for praising him for who he is, for, especially for this salvation that he brings to us, most, most of all. The Israelites at this time were not thinking about God as anything more than a deity to be appeased by giving sacrifices and doing all that stuff so that he would bless them with more stuff. That's all, they, that's all it was, just a pagan view of God. Try to make God happy so he'll give me more things. It wasn't about him. He wasn't the center. I am the center. And he might be useful for me, so if he needs some sacrifices or some praises or whatever, I'll, I'll go, you know, we'll throw that in his direction. But I'm thinking about tomorrow's business. They don't love God. They don't honor God or serve God for God. They just do it for themselves. So... It gets worse than that. If anything can be worse than that. In verse 5 it gets worse. So, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market and now this next part. Open the market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. Okay, what's all that mean? Well, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales, you know what that means, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. It was an age-old practice, right? So somebody's buying something from you and you got the scales there and you've got your one pound thing to measure it by, but it's really eight-tenths of a pound, even though it says one pound on it. So you weigh them out and you just made some money because they paid you for a whole pound and you gave them eight-tenths of a pound. That's what it's talking about there. If I measure out grain by the pound and if I get a hundred shekels for 80 shekels worth of grain, I'm making good profit there. So that's what they were doing and that's what people have done forever, right? That's why on, when you go to the gas station, you ever notice that little sticker on there? It says this has been tested by the, I don't know, weights and measures department or something like that. Some guy in the government runs around and measures how much actually comes out of the gas pump. Because how easy it would be to set that so that you're paying for 10 gallons of gas, but you're getting nine and a half gallons of gas. And if that happens a thousand times, they're making a lot of money. See, So the government actually goes around to check that every now and then. Potato chip bags. <laughs> 
I bought a giant bag of potato chips and I opened it and it was only half full of potato chips. The air escaped and blew my hair off. <laughs> that was a trick. I thought I was getting that many potato chips and I got that many potato chips. Mm. I just saw an article the other day about a used car dealership back in the Midwest and the guy had set all the odometers back from the used cars. He was selling 70,000 miles back from what they actually were and finally he got caught. There's all kinds of ways of doing it, right? In fact, there are people, large corporations hire people to figure out how to manipulate your mind to give you less than what they're actually promising without breaking the law. I mean, there's people that are, that's their job to do that, to manipulate people to, to buy something that is not what they think it is, to misportray and all that. That goes on all the time. So the Israelites, they're at a feast honoring the Lord and they're thinking about making more money tomorrow, which is bad enough, but they're also thinking about how can I cheat when I do that? How can I deceive people when I do that? God hates that. God hates that. He hates that he's not honored, but he really hates um, also that's this corrupt business. In fact, the Bible calls it an abomination. If you ever read through the Old Testament, there's a number of times you run into this word abomination. Abominations are things that are utterly detestable. The grossest, sickest, twisted, most horrible thing you would never want to ever be near in any way, shape, or form. And some sins are labeled as abominations. And usually they're societally destructive sins as well. Um, Deuteronomy 25, 13. Law of Moses. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. Now that doesn't mean a cup and a half cup. It means phony weights, right? You shall not have a full, you shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord God. That's Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 16. And that's what they were doing. And not only that, when they were supposed to be worshiping God, they were thinking about doing it. They were planning that for the next day or, for, or when the feast was over or whatever. It's, it's utterly detestable. It's an abomination. What does, what does a, what does a believing, what does a man that loves God, what, how, how does he conduct his business? What does a believing person do with their business? How can a man worried about his business function on a Sunday morning while an old man is teaching? How's that, how's that, how does that, how does that work for him? What does he do when he's worried about business or just concerned about where there's next, uh, Money is coming from like that. He has legitimate, I'm talking about legitimate concerns about tomorrow and what's going to happen tomorrow with the business. How does, he, how does he worship? Well, he takes those thoughts and he trusts God with them. He says, I'm putting my business in your hands. I'm going to do everything I can that's right and work hard, but I'm putting it in your hands. And I'm going to leave that aside for now. And I'm going to give you the worship that you deserve. And I'm going to praise your name. See, in all of our troubles, we do what is right and just. And then we trust God with the results. That's what we're supposed to do. So be honest, be responsible, work diligently, give God his due, love him, honor him as you're supposed to do that. And then you have to trust him. Be content with what he provides, worship him, and pray for him to bless your business. You can pray for that. Lord, please bless 
my, my hard work in my business. And I will be just and honest, and I will give you your due always with my heart. I will worship you. And if it fails, you bless him for a new direction in life. <laughs> He's got another plan for you. But learn from Israel here that God comes first always. Jesus said, and it's almost so well known that people don't apply these words, but seek first his kingdom, right? And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And all these things are your food and clothing and covering and those kind of things. So for the man who trusts him and puts him first, he has our back. He has your back. He really does. The Israelites did not seek his kingdom. They didn't seek his righteousness. So judgment was coming for them. And in verse 6 of chapter 8 here, it seems to refer to the rich buying up the land of the poor and basically eliminating them from owning anything. And, and they, it says to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Remember, if you were very poor under the law of Moses and you couldn't make it in life, you'd starve to death, you could sell yourself into slavery for a certain number of years, a short span of years. So what the rich would do there is they'd say, oh, you can't pay me, the, I, I literally can pay you, the, the poor person would say, in two weeks. And say, yeah, that's, oh, sorry, you can't pay me today, you're going to be my slave for six years. That's what they were doing. They were just taking advantage of the situation. So anybody that got behind a little bit, you're my slave. That's how it was going on. So the, the, the poor were disappearing from the land in terms of ownership and having their own place or anything like that. They had to become, they had to become slaves. So the law was actually a protection for the poor so they would never become completely destitute. They'd have a way to um, survive and then when they went out from slavery the owner was to give them a certain amount of stuff to start a new life with. That's the law of Moses. But these guys were using it to just make slaves out of people so they didn't have to and take their land from them and all that kind of stuff. So the last line of verse 6 about the wheat it kind of suggests uh, selling garbage basically. Um, you know at the end of the day of selling wheat there's a lot of crud on the floor and we sweep that up and we sell that to the poor. You know we don't give anybody anything. We, we've got our extra few shekels we get from scra scraping up the leavings and we sell that to the poor people. That's the kind of stuff they're doing. Just keep your eye on making a little bit more. God says that's an abomination. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. So verse 7, God takes an oath. Now the language here is really interesting. Two times already in Amos, God has taken an oath. In chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, his incorruptible, unchanging nature. In chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. You can't swear by anything higher than God, so God swears by himself. But here in verse 8, he swears by the pride of Jacob. It's pretty interesting. Now, God should be the pride of Jacob, but he isn't. And so maybe that's what he means. I'm going to swear by the, God, the pride of Jacob, which should be me. That might be what he means. But a lot of Bible scholars think this is divine sarcasm. So like you're, you're, you're swearing by something that is unchangeable, something eternal. And you know what's eternal and unchangeable? The pride of Jacob. Their arrogance. That's, that, that's what he's swearing by. I think that might be it. That, that's what a lot of scholars think that he's doing there. So it's the pride that keeps Israel from repenting. It's pride that keeps them from coming to God, from sorting out their life in the right way. They've become set, unmovable in this reality of their arrogance. So what does he swear, actually? Verse 8, I will never forget any of their deeds. I will never forget 
any of their deeds. God swears he won't forget. God only forgets deeds that have been truly repented of. So for the humble believer, well, for the humble believer, it would be like David says in Psalm 103, verse 8. Do you remember that psalm? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as, the, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, which is pretty far, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He does forget our sins when we are humble before him and repent. But for the unrepentant and the proud and those who reject his mercy, he will remember their sins to judgment day. I think the unrepentant and the unbelieving just think that, well, you know, if there's a God, he won't remember or he won't care. You know, well, he says he does care and he will not forget any of their deeds. The only forgetting God does about sin is in the blood of Christ, the death of Christ for his people. With him, with Christ, sins are forgiven and covered and paid for and never thrown in our faces. What's Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? But for Israel, the judgment day was just a few years away. So the rest of Amos 8 describes the complete upheaval. We'll just kind of run through this real quick. The despoiling of the nation by the rising Assyrian Empire. They're about to come. They're God's tool of judgment. So verse 8, because of this will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile. It will be tossed about and subside, subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in the broad daylight. So verse 8 and 9 seem to be using this sort of metaphorical language from nature about the radical change of fortunes that are coming upon the nation. Because the nation was at its height. It was powerful. It was rich. They were doing great, they thought. And they're going to be completely overthrown. So nothing's going to be the same. The sun will go down at noon. When you think you're at the height it's going to all be brought crashing down. Disaster will strike the kingdom. And you can see that in verse 10 as well. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins. That's what you wear when you're mourning. Baldness on every head. Almost there. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son and at the end of it will be like a bitter day. So notice all the times he says, I will, I will. I will. God will bring about this judgment. No more parties, only sadness and despair. No more joyous times. No more happy songs. No more fine clothes. No more calculating big profits in your head. Finally, there will be famine, too. Uh, and a different kind of famine. Look at verse 11. God's going to stop communicating. That's actually what he says here. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of God, the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. 
So when judgment falls, they're going to seek a word from God, but he won't have anything to say to them. There will be no prophets for them. No prophets will speak. The time to hear the prophet is now, before disaster strikes. And you know what the unrighteous will do when there's a famine of the word of God and there's no prophets that will speak to them? They'll, they'll turn to their idols. Verse 13, And that day the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. And for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, that's how they're going to swear. They will fall and not rise again. So Dan, of course, was the farthest northern tribe where they put one of those golden calves. And Beersheba was a place where they worshipped pagan idols in Israel at that particular time. So, he's, so people are going to be calling on those gods. But guess what? They aren't real. So they're not going to do anything. They're not going to help. They're not going to solve any problems that they have. But the living God, his, he's real, and his wrath is real. So that's what Amos chapter 8 is all about. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn that human beings are sinful. <laughs> that sinfulness often puts this world and its pleasures above our considerations of God and the honors that he deserves and the love we owe to him. Even morality gets cast aside, we see here, by their sin. I think we also see that apart from God's grace, human beings will choose any path but the right one, any path but one that leads to the Lord, because we're born to a rebellious race, and people will find all kinds of things to substitute in God's place. But rebellion against God, it's like woven into our nature. So that's why God's messengers are ignored like Amos is. And that's why sometimes they're hated. And we also learn that ignoring God, ignoring God's words brings terrible judgment. Because he tells us everything he's going to do. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He wasn't being self-centered. Unless you believe that me, unless you believe that I am. It's like you need to believe in the Savior that God provided for you. And I'm the, I'm the one he sent. I am God in human flesh. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Because only Jesus took our sins upon himself. Nobody else did that. No prophets did that. No seers did that. No famous philosophers did that. No religious leaders did that. Only Christ bore our sins on himself. And without him... We will receive on a, uh, on a day of just judgment exactly what we deserve. But with him, our sins are covered by his blood and he paid the penalty of our sins. Jesus also said, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what he said. So that's our confidence and our hope. So the word is out. Repent and believe in the Son. That's what matters. So let the world go. Stuff is just stuff. You're not going to be here all that long. Have treasure in heaven and give God his due. And don't hold anything back. Don't hold any corner of your heart back from him. Give him everything. Love him and serve him. That's, what he, that's all he asks for, what is right and proper for him. Let's pray. Lord, you are indeed worthy of all honor and devotion. You made us. And indeed, when we walked away, when humanity walked away, you sought us. You sought us out. You even came and died for our guilt, our shame, our sin. You did all that was needed to redeem us. And now we give you our deep thanks and our love.
as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.